Welcome one and all to Chasing Cutoffs, bringing you the trail running news and views from the back of the pack. Well, hello again, friends. Welcome back to the show. My name is Ben Mead, your hobbled host, and we have an amazing episode for you today and yet another incredible athlete to feature. But before we dive into this week's interview, let's jump in to this week's race roundup. So many incredible athletes have been out there just getting it done and absolutely crushing across the globe. And here are just a few. Well, it was just a few weeks ago when Miguel Soto of Guadalajara, Mexico, now up in Canada, went out and crushed DFL at the Knee Knacker. This, of course, is the Knee Knackering North Shore Trail 50K in North Vancouver, BC. And about his race, Miguel says, two months before, I decided not to run Knee Knacker due to an injury to my left knee. I couldn't follow my training correctly. I couldn't even run 10K. But when the race weekend arrived, I felt that pre-race excitement and I knew I had to try. I had a good performance until the climb to Black Mountain where I had many problems with my knee. And when I got to Cleveland Dam, I couldn't take it anymore. But in my mind, the worst part was over and I had made the cutoff. I had to continue as far as my leg would let me keep running. Cramps, falls, and scrapes made the road even more difficult. But getting to each aid station and seeing so many wonderful people motivating you and giving you words of encouragement is priceless. I reached the last stage of the race with 20 minutes left. I went out into the street and everyone started yelling at me, run, run, there's no time. And I didn't think about it anymore. I ran with everything I had full of cramps and pain. And it was my ninth ultra marathon and without a doubt, the most exciting. And speaking of exciting finishes, there is a video floating around out there of Miguel literally diving over the finish line. It is epic. Congrats, Miguel. Well, I also want to give a huge shout out to Shyla James of Quinero, Arizona on the Navajo Reservation. Shyla crushed DFL at Katsina Mosa 100K out in Utah. This, of course, is a super challenging loop through the Wasatch Mountains, kind of right above Provo there. And about her race, Shyla says, in preparation, I was anticipating hot temps, but it was a near perfect day. The course was tough, the climbs were never ending, but the ultra community was so humbling and optimistic. The support I received from my crew and pacer was unmeasurable. Knowing I'd see them at the designated aid stations gave me the strength to dig deep and look forward to their smiling faces and good food. I stepped on that road with the goal to finish the race and I did just that. Congratulations, Shiloh. That is awesome. I also want to give a huge shout out to Wendy Wagner of Milwaukee, Oregon, who crushed DFL at the Volcanic 25K. This, of course, is the race there at Mount St. Helens, where they also do a 50K. Wendy says, my training hit all kinds of snags. Foot and ankle problems in late April and COVID in May meant missing almost two months of running. Did I do as well as I had hoped I would have? Well, I came in DFL, but I did tackle the toughest terrain I've ever moved across, and I had a great time. I can't say enough great stuff about all the people up on that mountain who told me not to give up, especially Dana Katz at Ultra Coach, and my favorite crew of friends who waited for me and took care of me at the end. I can't wait for the next time. Congrats, Wendy. And our final shout out this week goes to Tim McKinney. Kinsey of Las Vegas, Nevada, who absolutely crushed DFL at Tushar's 100K. This, of course, is the Era Viper race out in Beaver, Utah. Tim says about his race, I stood scared at the start line of Tushar's 100K with the memory of last year's DNF imprinted in my mind like a bad nightmare. Last year, my hopes and dreams were shattered and I was broken emotionally and physically at mile 22 due to missing the Mud Lake cutoff by one hour. As a result, I refocused my training, I revamped the way I eat, and I summited 15 peaks in the span of a few months in preparation for redemption. But would it be enough? (laughs) 
Once we began the race, things started to flow. With each step I took, my confidence grew. When I reached Mud Lake at mile 22 this year, I was two hours faster than the previous year, which was extremely uplifting. But after leaving Miner's Park Aid Station at mile 48, the darkness began to set in. And once I reached Al United Aid Station, my soul was crushed. They pumped me full of soup and coffee and sent me on my way once again, stumbling into the darkness. Each step I took away from the aid station, my fear grew bigger. Was I lost? I haven't seen a flag in a while. In the distance, I saw a group of lights traveling my way. Were these the sweepers coming to tell me I better hurry up or they're going to pull me off the course? It was other racers still in the fight. I joined up with them and we began to move as one unit. My confidence grew as surely I could stay with the group and just focus on the feet of the person in front of me. I kept checking my watch and was hyper aware of how much time I had left before the final cutoff. The finish line was in sight and I began sprinting up the ski slope, heart pounding, lungs expanding, wondering if they would explode, gasping for air. Once I crossed the finish line, the rush of emotion of what I had just endured began to flow. This was without a doubt my most memorable and meaningful finish to date. It will be etched in my memory for eternity. Official time, 23 hours, 59 minutes, 19 seconds, 41 seconds before the 24 hour cutoff. Congratulations, Tim. Congratulations to each and every one of you that are out there just getting your money's worth, getting it done and absolutely crushing it. And now, a word from our sponsor. This week's episode of Chasing Cutoffs is brought to you by Slowpokes Only. Are you ready to put yourself back out there but feel let down by traditional dating apps? Check out Slowpokes Only, the new boutique dating app for the ultra slow. Slowpokes Only connects you with thousands of available slow-moving singles by matching not only your personal profiles but your performance data too, like your goal race, your average pace, and your longest run. So if you've been looking for love at all the wrong paces, download Slow Pokes Only and find your lifelong running partner today. And now, back to the show. My next guest is the founder of Party Pace Pals, and I cannot wait to introduce each and every one of you to them. Emmy Farber, welcome to Chasing Cutoffs. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to chat about running with you. It's super nice of you to say yes and come on the show. And one of the things that I really, really love about your journey is that it is relatively new. And I do want to talk about your sort of discovery process and why you decided to just start getting into trail running. And I think that you had a very recent race <laughs> that we can probably unpack as well. <laughs> sure did. But before we do that, I would love to jump into the Wayback Machine. I would just love to hear about your family and where you grew up. Where are you from? I had kind of a split childhood in Northern California. So my parents lived in a little bit outside the East Bay. And I was there from when I was a teeny tiny kiddo until about 13. And mm. then we moved to the East Coast. And then I was there um, in Connecticut from middle school through college and then really wanted to get out of Connecticut. Um, was done <laughs> with the very tiny, strange state of Connecticut and was looking at grad schools and just fell in love with Seattle when I was out visiting and never looked back. Mm. So moved out here the week after I graduated undergrad and I've been here ever since. Wow. So I'm assuming you experienced some significant culture shock going from Northern California to Connecticut. Yeah, it was, I mean, in some ways it was really, really good. My dad and my brother were involved in scouts and they found a huge community of scouting there. And it was, you know, really lovely on that front, but it was just, um, very cold mm. and abrasive. Abrasive in what way? <laughs> abrasive. Um, just like the, the people can be a little, a little, um, just a little different. Sure. Yeah. And like, I, I love some of that about the East coast, but it just kind of always felt like 
people either really liked you or they really didn't and they would really tell you. And Oh, yeah, they're very direct, right? They're not passive aggressive like we are in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, I know. At least here, people will pretend to be so nice to you. They'll tell you that they want to hang out. And then everyone just agrees. There's just a societal agreement that that just won't happen. <laughs> no one needs to actually do it. Um, oh, that is so true. <laughs> I mean, I found that to be true everywhere, but the trail running world, mm. where if you say, let's go run sometime, people will track you down and say, great, we're going to go do this. Oh, interesting. So that has been really, really nice. Yeah. What was the driver that sent your parents from Northern California to Connecticut? Uh, my dad's job. He worked for IBM and he was looking for, you know, kind of moving up in the corporate or I don't know anyone whose dad worked at IBM, like they don't actually know what they did. Um, <laughs> was he doing like super secret government stuff? I don't think so. At one point he worked for Linux. I just know there were cute little penguins. Right. Yep. Yeah, that's Linux. Yeah. That's all. That's all I really knew. <laughs> so he took a job there and my parents wanted to move us if we were going to do it like before high school. Mm. And both of them were from the East Coast. So uh, so they had some familiarity. They were going home. Yeah. So they were headed home. So it was nice for them. And they wanted us to experience the East Coast. And Interesting. in lots of ways, it was really good um but by the time by the time i got through college i was i was ready to come back to the west coast yeah i bet so throughout those high school years were you involved in any sporting adventures yeah i mean i grew up really athletic i grew up a competitive gymnast and mm. that kind of dominated my very young life when i think about how much time oh, <laughs> i was yeah. in a gym it's just wild um so i was always a part of a team and then i like most young gymnasts got injured and mm. that ended <laughs> ended my career uh, did you have like olympic gold dreams and all no. of that oh my gosh no no i was really actually i i'm looking forward to my mother listening to this because i'll say i was really bad i was really <laughs> bad at gymnastics and she'll go, oh, no, no, she wasn't. Um, but I was just, I was not very good. Mm. But we had great community and it was super fun. Mm. And I was really close to all the girls on my team. And that just kind of instilled this love of like team sports in me from a very young age. Yeah. And so after that was over, then in high school, I played field hockey, mm. um, which is a very Connecticut thing to do. I know. It's like the non-magical Quidditch or something. Yep. So I love that. I played all four years. And then in college, I rode crew. Oh, wow. Man, this is this is so East Coast. The, I know hearing it out loud makes me sound like such a wasp, but my parents, we actually, it was actually raised in a really observant Jewish household hmm. and ended up down these <laughs> very um, East Coasty sounding yeah. places. Yeah. So yeah, so it always, always been a part of a team, always my whole life. And my dad was a runner. And so I grew up with him running with our next door neighbor mm. and sitting on the front porch on weekends after they got back from their long runs and then occasionally doing these little like fun runs with him. And it was just like part of life. Yeah, that's cool. And mm -hmm. where did you go to college? I went to the University of Connecticut. Okay. And what did you study? I studied anthropology and women's studies. Very cool. Very, very useful. Yeah. Um. But you didn't want to stop there. You wanted to go to graduate school. Mm -hmm. And you started looking around the country and you found Seattle. So yeah. where did you wind up going? I went to Seattle U. I studied anthropology with more a focus in medical anthropology mm -hmm. and health systems mm -hmm. around the world and through that found midwifery and I thought you know anthropology is a great starting point to go into public health and I'll look down that road advocate for midwifery care um, advocate for maternal and child health on the policy level but then went to a couple births while I was studying abroad and that was it for me I totally fell in love with that world and came back after my study abroad time in Cape Town and very quickly did my kind of pre-nursing studies and then hopped into kind of this wild type of program at Seattle U that they do a very accelerated nursing year. So they kind of push you through all of the nursing education and then on into your specialty practice. 
and so then two and a half years later, I came out a very young, very bright and shiny <laughs> midwife. <laughs> so can I ask some really dumb questions? Yes, there's no dumb questions. I have this impression in my brain that there's some like legal issue with midwifery, maybe in certain states where it's legal or not. Can you help me understand that? Yeah. Midwifery in the U.S. is really kind of a disjointed system. So there's several different kinds of midwives. And so what I am is a nurse midwife. We are legal in all 50 states. We are master's level prepared um, nurses. And in Washington, if you are familiar with like family nurse practitioners, adult nurse practitioners, we have the same licensure as them. We just Mm. practice in um, like reproductive health. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we practice in all 50 states on that level. And most of us practice in the hospital setting. I see. And so the nurse midwifery route, we are able to take care of folks that are slightly higher risk, can offer this really kind of great model of normal birth in a hospital setting. Mm. Okay. Um, And then we have all the tools in our tool belt. So if someone says, you know, I don't want any medications through my birth. We say, fantastic. We're trained in helping to support normal birth without meds. Mm. If folks need, you know, intervention for whatever reason, if they want an epidural, then we say, great, we can do that too. So we kind of get to offer the whole gamut. But from the standpoint that birth overall, for the most part, goes well most of the time. And then if things are not going well, we have physician backup that's right there with us. Yeah. Well, I have been thoroughly educated and I really appreciate (laughs) that. I'm sure there's a lot of listeners too that don't fully understand this world. So I really appreciate that. Thank you for explaining that. So you come out of college, this bright, shiny midwife, and and at what point do you discover yourself again as an athlete? Um, that's a really good question. I had been an on and off again runner for a, a while. I mean, it just was a part of my family culture. I would run with my dad on weekends. And then shortly after he died, I actually got injured and I went through this really long diagnostic process. No one could figure out what was wrong with me and eventually ended up with the diagnosis of piriformis syndrome. What is piriformis syndrome? I I think in the ortho world, they say it's literally a pain in the butt. Um, (laughs) It is where your sciatic nerve basically is encircled with muscles that get inflamed. Mm. And then when they become inflamed, it sends sciatic like pain down your leg. Oh man, that sounds horrible. It is a bummer. It's a really big bummer. And most orthopedists that I saw basically just told me, cool, get a bike. You're not a runner anymore. Stop mm-hmm. running. Yeah. Yep. Cause you're just going to keep irritating it or whatever. Yep. And so I would go to PT, it would get better. I would go back to running. I would get re-injured. It was this really kind of devastating process. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of hung up my hat in that realm and said, okay, I guess I bike now. Uh What sort of time frame was this? That happened early in college. I was like 18, 19. Okay. I'm sorry to hear about your dad passing away when you were so young. Yeah, it was a, um, it was a really big bummer. He got pancreatic cancer when Mm. I was in my first semester of college. Um, and that is a really, really fast moving, awful cancer. So this is before grad school. So you were still back in Connecticut at that time. Yeah, it was, it was rough. Um, yeah. And I kind of lost running at the same time. Right. (laughs) And so one of my big coping mechanisms then also was gone. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was, um, that was really difficult, but just kind of picked up like my ortho said, like get a bike. (laughs) Started biking. started biking and not anything really serious until I moved to Seattle. And that was really where, where it took off for me. Did you do the whole Uh, bike commute thing, full rain suit, like some of these crazy people? (laughs) Yep. All weather cyclists got myself some really good vortex and got really into bike touring. My partner and I biked from Seattle to San Francisco. Whoa. Yeah. 
You are a serious cyclist. Um, well, now I do a lot of running. So my poor bike <laughs> is like sitting there looking at me, wondering when, when are we going out again? Yeah. So you really got into cycling. Yeah. So really got into cycling and it was just like, a yeah, I go bike touring. We go on long rides, but then got injured again. I broke my elbow oh my in a bike gosh. accident. Oh, <laughs> I know no. I've like been through the ringer. I broke my elbow um, while I was bike commuting. Oh, so were you on your way to work or on your way home? Yeah. Well, so I was on the way to work and the paramedics came and scooped me up. And it was one of those, I don't know if you remember the 2019 threes in January. It was like three weeks of snow. It was like wild. Yeah, it was when it was super, super cold. People in other parts of the U.S. were like, what are you talking about? It snows People, for It doesn't snow <laughs> in Seattle, okay? And when it does, it's devastating. <laughs> um, so you were riding your bike in the snow? It was just really icy. It was okay. really cold. It was before we got all of the snow. Okay. And I turned a corner too fast, hit a patch of ice, and my whole bike came out from under me. And I just cracked the little end right off my elbow. Oh, did you have to have surgery for that? Yeah, I did. Oh, my word. That is <laughs> hardcore. Yeah, it was a bummer. Was that the end of your bike riding career? No, that was the beginning of me really getting into cycling from um, like a really like athletic point of view. Like I'm going to actually like race and do bigger things. So I healed and said, okay, I'm not going to let this stop me from biking. And so I leaned in and did a couple century rides that summer. I took on the High Pass Challenge, which is a ride that leaves out of Packwood, Washington. It's a 104 mile out and back up to the blast zone at Mount St. Helens. Wow. And so it's a ton. It's just basically uphill for close to 60 miles. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, It was really wild and really beautiful. And yeah, I really got into to long distance cycling, started getting acquainted with our randonneuring groups, which is kind of like, it's the equivalent of like ultra runners in cycling. On the road though. On the road. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. What do you call that? Um, It's called randonneuring. Wow. I've never heard that term. We're learning so many new things today. So listener. many things. Yeah. There's actually a lot of crossover in the ultra running and randonneuring worlds because everyone is nuts. I wasn't aware that people were doing this kind of ultra vibe on the road. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. I mean, like most things in cycling, really big in other parts of the world, but they do the kind of their shortest distance is either a hundred K or 200 K is kind of their like warm up taster (laughs) rides. And, you know, they do 300, 400 up to 1200 K distances. It's really something to watch. And what was the longest ride you ever did? I have ridden just shy of 200K. Wow. So you've been an athlete for quite some time. I am also curious, how did you meet your partner? We met through political organizing. Okay. So we met. Your classic uh, rom-com meet cute story. mm -hmm. Yeah, I got involved with a group shortly after I moved here, you know, working in reproductive health and um, got involved with an organization that did abortion clinic defense. How do you do that in a respectful way? How do you protect people, but also not make the situation worse? Yeah, it's a really delicate balance. Whoa. So through this political organization, you met. Yes. Is there a a story there? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, there's always a story. I mean, we were just like so young. And I mean, for Seattle, this is like everyone was like, are, is everything okay? Um, are you pregnant? <laughs> you know, we got married when I had just turned 25. Yeah. I mean, most of our courtship took place on bikes and we would just like ride all over the city. And then we decided to do this big, long bike ride to San Francisco where his dad and stepmom lived at the time. So we were basically biking to their apartment in San Francisco. And so we got engaged along that ride and, Yeah, it was just really 
really sweet and just we just fell so in love so fast cool. and we'll have been together for 10 years this july and we have a five-year-old he'll be six this summer at some stage along the way there is a shift for you from the mm-hmm. bike back to one of your first loves mm-hmm. in running yeah. how did that happen so i had a friend that was really into trail running and I had no idea really what this was. Mm. I had no idea that people ran on trails. I was super confused and he was running a 100 miler. Um, He did Cascade Crest in 2019 and he had done several hundred milers leading up to it. So it was, you know, old hat for him, but he was looking for some folks to help crew. And so I helped his wife out. And it was the first time I'd ever seen a trail race. I mean, it totally blew me out of this world. I had no idea that this whole world existed. And I thought, oh my gosh, these people are so nuts. And I want to do this. (laughs) What a way to get introduced to trail running. It's like, welcome to Cascade Crest. This is a hundred miles. And I mean, just the going around to all the aid stations, just seeing all of the aid station volunteers, just the, I wish I had a less bro-y word, but like the stoke was just so (laughs) high and everyone was so jazzed. People were doing just these amazing things. Yeah. It was incredible to see, and it was just so joyful. And I said, wow, I think I want to try this. And this is 2019. Yeah. So you get home from this experience. Mm -hmm. What do you do next? Like, how do you discover (laughs) more? Is it like, I'm just going to go out on the trail and I'm going to try this myself? Or is it, I'm going to do a rabbit hole on YouTube to find out more? I just bought my first pair of trail shoes, went up to our lovely little shop up in Magnolia, Seven Hills. Shout out Seven Hills running. Yeah. (laughs) Got my first pair of trail shoes and um, headed out to Discovery Park and said, all right, I think I'm going to try. And I was really nervous. I mean, it was beautiful to see Cascade Crest, but at the same time that I felt like, oh my gosh, I want to be a part of this. One of the biggest feelings that I was struggling with was I don't look like any of the people in this world. Mm. I don't think I could belong here because I don't look like any of these athletes. Mm. And body image and disordered eating is something that I've struggled with for, I mean, since I was a young kid. And it was a really big fear and big deterrent. Like, I'm never going to look like these athletes. Do I even really (laughs) belong here? Yeah. So I was nervous and also I hadn't tried to run in probably close to 10 years. So I didn't know what would happen if I just gave it a try. Was that old injury going to come back? Right. Mm -hmm. Was I going to, you know, break my ankle on the smooth gravel paths of Discovery Mm -hmm. Park? (laughs) Yep. Yeah. So I just didn't really know what was going to happen. And so I took it as slow as I knew how. Um, I have a tendency to just kind of jump into things and just kind of go for it to the point of entry. Yeah. So I, I tried to, I tried to take it slow and just started running and the injury didn't come back. So I just kind of dove into it and started running and then the pandemic happened. Yeah. So that's a bit of a buzzkill when you're just like getting super excited about something. So now this new fun thing that you're really enjoying has been taken away from you. On top of that, you are a medical professional and now you're suddenly thrown into the world of COVID in the medical profession. So how did COVID impact midwifery? It was really scary. And I think there was so much uncertainty Mm. and we just didn't have any answers. And, you know, I think back on what we were being told about COVID and pregnancy and, you know, early on, they just didn't have any research to say that it was really going to be bad for pregnant folks. I mean, it was just so just emotionally exhausting Mm -hmm. because all of my visits just became about you know, what's going to happen? Am I going to be safe? What if I have COVID when I give birth? You know, am I going to have to birth alone? All of these just really big emotional pieces that were then also facing this trauma Mm -hmm. and have no answers to give people. Um, 
it was, I mean, I don't think any medical provider has come out of this without a fair amount of just burnout and exhaustion and trauma. Yeah. Well, before we emerge from the pandemic period and we're all kind of crossing our fingers that we are post pandemic now, I say that with a question mark at the end. Yeah. Let me say thank you. Thank you for being a frontline medical care worker. I'm confident that that was super traumatic and super difficult. And I appreciate everything that you did. Oh, thanks. So at some stage, racing comes back. During that pandemic period, did you continue to train outside and run trails and stay engaged? Yeah, I did. I mean, it kind of felt like all I had. (laughs) Mm. to really blow off steam and have something that I could control, something to look forward to. I mean, I think I am such an extrovert and the pandemic was just so hard on us. (laughs) Um, And I found a lot of community in those early days with the virtual races that happened Mm -hmm. and feeling like I was doing something kind of together with other people. So it was something I really leaned hard into. Races did come back. Mm -hmm. And was this Devil's Gulch half marathon in Wenatchee in central Washington? Mm -hmm. Was that your first race back in person? It was. And this was a half marathon. Tell me about that day. That day was probably one of, (laughs) I'm going to describe what happened and you're going to wonder why I have such fond feelings (laughs) about this day. (laughs) So Banshee running was kind of the brainchild of, you know, two folks that I got really close to that were, you know, some good friends of um, the racer that I knew that did Cascade Crest. And I mean, really just wanted to put on events and races that had really inclusive time limits, like for their half marathon, it was something like a six or seven hour cutoff. It really, really generous cutoffs, really encouraging folks to come out that felt like, you know, is this world for me? Mm. And so that almost immediately felt like home. Yeah. Well, shout out race director, Jesse McClurg. Yeah. She's one of the founders. I'm assuming that you're referencing. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so I was super excited for this race and immediately we got going and people in the other parts of the country will laugh when I say it was really hot, but we started and it was about 75, 75. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And maybe with a high of like 78 that day, it was really warm. And so there are some folks that don't take too kindly to trail runners. Hmm. And so someone went and messed with a bunch of the course markings. So either pulled them down or turn signs around. I would say probably most of us made a wrong turn about a mile into the Mm. course. And then one of the gals who was racing, who, oh my gosh, she was going to win that race that day too. Um, All of a sudden we see her just hightailing it back towards all of us. Oh, that's never a good sign. (laughs) Yeah. And we went, oh no. So we had made a wrong turn and then a lot of people decided, well, I'm just going to do the course backwards and whatever. It's okay. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to get all the way to the aid station and then have them turn me around. Mm -hmm. I still was about a mile out from the aid station. And so just turned around and said, okay, I guess I'm just going to have a longer day out here. It's going to be a little bit more than a half marathon. That's all right. Yep. And just turned myself right around and found kind of where we needed to head back up the right way, but then realized that there were some markings that were gone. So we knew that the course was really well marked. Mm -hmm. And I ran into my now dear friend, Jenny, who was an absolute boy scout that day and had a map and was actually prepared and did the thing that all of us were told to do, which is to carry a map and not rely on the course markings. We got to give Jenny Jorgensen a shout out for being amazing. Yep. Huge shout out to, for being the best Boy Scout that day and being prepared. <laughs> then I said, Hey, 
can I run with you? Because otherwise I don't think I'm going to be able to keep going. And she said, yeah, sure. Let's take on the day. So we just kind of stuck together through most of the day, ran into other folks that were lost, were trying to find their way, pointed them in the right direction. And it was really, it was just this really lovely thing that I hadn't got to experience yet, which is just running several miles with you know, a new friend in the middle of a race that's going to keep you going. It was really, it was really something. And then at the end, met a bunch of folks like in real life that I basically connected with over social media through the pandemic and finally got to meet them and hear their stories about running, hear about their day. And it was this really kind of great moment of, okay, this community of trail running really, like it, it really can happen i can see this again yeah what i love about how how this is such an amazing positive memory for you is that at no stage are you mentioning where you finished this particular race um well so i should actually be really proud i finished that race dead last d f l yeah you did it congratulations i did it was my first one And the thing that isn't always present in the cycling world um, and that I really got to see, you know, with a golden hour runner at Cascade Crest is that I think people are like more excited Mm. for those like last runners to come in. And that's really been my experience. And and we don't always see that like in the cycling world, you know, the things start getting torn down. There isn't um, kind of this excitement about the last people that are coming in that I've seen in the same well, way awesome. in, the, in the trail that's world. Awesome. Yeah. So in April of this year, you did another six hour. I did. The Walla Walla. And what was the course like for this six hour race? It was in... I think it's a little state park that had some rolling hills, but it was just this big kind of open. There was a lot of single track. I mean, a lot of it was really runnable. So a lot of us were just moving all day. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was, it was trail running flat. It was like maybe 300 feet of elevation per five mile loop. Gotcha. It was a pretty sweet little loop. How many miles did you end up doing that day? I did 24 miles that day. Wow, cool. Congratulations. That's really cool. Now, would you consider this Walla Walla six hour and this 23 miles to be a training race, perhaps, for your big race? I did. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I had really focused through this little training block on just time on feet, just really focusing on, you know, okay, I'm going to be out for two hours. I'm going to be out for three hours, four hours. And this was the longest time. So I was really hoping that it would go well, that I would have a relatively high mileage day. I couldn't have asked for a better day. And so I felt really, really good coming out of it and felt like, okay, I can move for at least six hours. I'm feeling good coming out of it. Like it was like type one fun the whole way through. Mm. And I mean, I I can't wait to do more races with Walla Trails. Like I think that's just their whole thing is just like super fun. So it's time to discuss. Oh no, (laughs) it's time to discuss what your A (laughs) race, your goal race, the big one. You got into, because I don't think it's necessarily even easy to get into this race. You got into Tiger Claw. Yeah. Did you have to get in a lottery for that? No, it was like a set your alarm for 6 a.m. when registration opens and sign up right then and there. Gotcha. And so you got in that way. Mm-hmm. For folks that don't know, this is in the Issaquah Alps. I think it's on Tiger Mountain. Yeah. And it is the Ethan Newberry Ginger Runner race. I think this was the second year because they had some pandemic gap. Mm-hmm. But it's a really interesting race because it has this sort of choose your own adventure vibe. There's multiple loops. You have to run all of them, but you can run them in any order that you want to run them in. So, and they're all colored a certain way and you you have a little technology boop swoop swipe deal that goes along with it how does that all work so it was very high tech this year on my bib there was an orange yellow pink and white little tabs and when i came up to the top of each loop there was a volunteer there with a pen that would just make a mark on it Uh, okay (laughs) so when you say very high tech we're being facetious (laughs) yes (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, it works. Yeah. Sometimes the low tech option is what works the best. Yeah. So this year, I think they rerouted the course from the original running yep. because there mm-hmm. has been some logging out there. Yep. So everyone did sort of a warm up, easy, quote unquote, loop, the green loop. Yeah. And then you got back to the start line and you had to make a choice. And what mm-hmm. did you decide to do first? My strategy, I think, needs to be reworked. But my thinking was tackle as much distance as you can first. Mm. And then the shorter loops are, you know, they're short, but pretty punchy. Mm-hmm. Each of them had, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 feet of climbing in, you know, a three mile loop. And so I was really worried about making the cutoff Mm -hmm. down at, basically you had to be leaving for your last loop by 2 PM. And so I thought, you know, if I leave one of these longer loops for the last, I'm going to get cut off either at the lower or the upper aid station. Mm. So I thought I'll save about half of the climbing for the end in these shorter loops. So I decided to go out on the yellow loop, which is kind of the poo-poo point trail loop. So I decided to do that one first and tackle about seven and a half miles that way. Came back down. 1,800 feet of vert on the yellow loop. Yep. And it was so muddy. It was just like ankle deep mud in places, (laughs) Um, which really, I think for a lot of very seasoned Northwest trail runners, they're like, yep, that's the way the cookie crumbles sometimes, but it, it really slowed me down. Mm. This is a five mile loop, 1800 feet of climbing, super muddy. Mm -hmm. So you finished that loop, but you did so slower than you had hoped for. I mean, I actually hit my goal time. I did some like back of the napkin math on each of my loops and said, okay, if I hit somewhere in between my like best case scenario and worst case scenario, I'm going to not miss cut off. It's going to be okay. Mm. And I thought like tackle the distance first and you know, you'll just climb a bunch at the end. So yellow loop actually went really well. I had a really good time aside from the mud and came back down, grabbed a bunch of snacks and then headed back out on the pink loop, which is the next longer loop, mm-hmm. which that's one of my go-to places that I run. I was really familiar with it. I really, really love that loop. 4.8 miles, 2,200 mm-hmm. feet of gain. Yep. So that one was, it was more climbing right off the bat. And I learned a really good lesson that as much as you think Masubi rice with the like the fried spam on top of it as much as you think that that might be a really really good quick high carb high protein snack it is not (laughs) so i simultaneously learned do not experiment with that on race day okay (laughs) and no it is not a good idea And that really did me in on that loop. I got super nauseous and had to stop several times. And I really struggled. Mm. It was not a fun time. And it was really the first time I had hit a lot of nausea um, during a race. But you managed to finish the pink loop. I did. Yep. So I finished the pink loop. I ran into some other runners out there, which also just raised my spirits so much. Um, So we finished out the pink loop together. And then... It was going to be really tight. The pink loop took me a lot longer than I had anticipated. Mm. And basically I was like, I'm going to start my next loop. And if it goes really well and they're not really enforcing cutoff, maybe they'll let me start my last loop. So did you choose white or did you choose orange for this (laughs) next adventure? I then went up orange, um, which is cable line. So this is another 1,500 feet of gain. Yep. In about a mile. In about a mile. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so super short, but super, yep. super difficult. And how did it go on the orange loop? Um, according to my Strava, it went really well, which just is very funny to me um, because I, I was realizing as it was happening, there's just no way I'm going to make cut off. And, you know, it had been a race that I had been looking forward to basically since I found out about Mm. it, I wasn't in the kind of shape that I needed to be the year that they ran it the first time, but 
I was so drawn to this huge challenge, to the choose your own adventure, to just the wild amount of vert and was like, I'm going to do this someday. Um, And I'd really been looking forward to it for close to two years. So it was a really emotional moment where I just kind of realized like, this isn't going to happen. Had some trail tears. Yep. So I had some trail tears, um, had a quick moment, but like literally right at the moment that I was about to have like a massive breakdown, a friend who was just like out for a hike that day, like, I ran into her and she, you know, saw me and was like, Oh, how are things going? (laughs) I things are not going well. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, I just kind of sobbed for a minute about, you know, I'm going to get cut off. And she was just like, is that going to change anything that you're doing right now? No, like just keep moving. Mm. And like, we'll see you when we see you. And so that really kept me from having like a total, mm-hmm. total breakdown. Um, so I, I came up to the top of the orange loop. And then I think really what did me in is I either got a horrible cramp in um, like the outside ligament of my knee. Mm. I honestly couldn't tell if it was a cramp or injury and it hurt really, really bad. And so then I just had to walk the rest of the way down West Tiger three like I didn't want to actually risk injury mm-hmm. so I just kind of hiked it down that last loop and came into the aid station and you know called my husband and <laughs> yeah so the white loop was never ventured on. right okay. yep yep so I didn't hit the white loop so with respect to this epic DNF did you pull the plug yourself or were you actually cut off by the cutoff um I mean I think it's kind of both mm. like I had formally missed cutoff by a fair amount of time. And also like I felt emotionally really done and I don't think I'd ever really felt like that before. Mm. And I'm really learning that if something is truly painful, like it's just not worth it because pushing through those things has taken me out for months at a time. And I'm just really sick of that cycle. So (laughs) you have experimented with the, let's just go all out (laughs) cycle. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it just wasn't my day to finish it and someday it will be, but I love that this 25 mile race is actually close to 28 miles. So I DNF'd my 25 mile race at 24.8 miles. (laughs) Oh my word, that is hilarious. Yeah, so I'm like, I'm really feeling okay about it. I would be interested to know if you reflect on your entire trail running career up to this point, from getting inspired at Cascade Crest to this Tiger Claw DNF, how are you feeling about Emmy, the trail runner? I mean, I will be honest, I feel not like any pressure to feel like, okay about the DNF. Mm. I think there's just kind of a like, yep, we've totally all been there and like, it's just gonna happen. Yeah. You know, the results got posted and I am in very good company of (laughs) DNFing this race this year. You know, so there's a part of me that feels like you learned so many good lessons and the people that race this race in particular are like the hardest of the hard. Oh, yeah. They say on the website, like literally, warning, this should not be your first trail race. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, so there's a part of me that feels like, you know, I got really, really close. I've only been running for two years. Mm -hmm. Like that, it's a pretty big accomplishment. It still was not, it was not harder than childbirth. Like I have done physically harder things (laughs) in my life. But there is a part of me that does feel a little gun shy about trying again. Mm. But also, if you look at my phone search history, it's like Cape Mountain 50K (laughs) and oh, maybe I should do the the Cougar Mountain 50K. That'll be a sweet one. So I have a lot of a lot of conflicting feelings. Yeah, that's totally normal. (laughs) Well, in terms of raising your spirits a little bit, one of the things that you've talked about extensively is this community that you've discovered and these new friends that you found along the trail. And you've taken that to a level that a lot of people haven't taken it. And that is with Party Pace Pals. Party Pace Pals. Tell me about Party Pace Pals. How did this happen and what is it? (laughs) Um, Party Pace Pals is a very informal running group that got going 
really like November, December of 2021. And really what planted the seed of the need for this was when Jenny and I were out you know, in the middle of Wenatchee, kind of lost, just kind of tooling around for the day and feeling like, you know, there's not a lot of space that really is kind of dedicated to the runners that aren't necessarily going to run fast or win races. Be competitive. Be competitive. Yeah. It's like, we're just out here to do the thing. And I really have to credit in the cycling world. There's a wonderful movement that has gotten started. That's called all bodies on bikes. Mm. And the founders of this movement really are looking at cycling as this place that just like trail running has been a very competitive, very male dominated, very, you know, thin, straight, white place. And that really all bodies belong on bikes. Mm. And the same goes for trails, like all bodies belong on trails. And so I was really hoping to kind of bring a similar energy to the trail running world. And we just go the pace that we need to go to keep the whole group together. Yeah. And if that means we're hiking most of the way for one day, great. You know, we stop at the top of every hill. We all finish together. It's just kind of a a place where folks can know, like, I'm going to go out with a group of people and I'm out there to just be together and not necessarily like have a workout today or run fast or put, you know. (laughs) I love this idea of we're all going to stick together, Mm. uh, which, you know, (laughs) I would never ask anyone to do that for me because I realize that I'm like super duper slow, but I love the idea that, uh, that you, mm-hmm. you have that from the outset as part of this group. Yeah. And I mean, we're out there to chat and have fun in the woods because it's, I mean, it's an intimidating sport mm-hmm. to get into. Mm-hmm. And I think through just like sheer willpower and stubbornness, most of us continue because the community And the benefit of that community is so great that I don't want anybody to be turned off by, you know, showing up to a run where they get dropped or it's not friendly or, you know, they get dropped in the woods and then they get lost. Um, That this should just be a soft place to land Mm. for people that want to explore this world. I love that. If folks happen to be in the area, how can they find out about when Party Pace Pals runs are occurring? Yeah, for the time being, we have mostly been out at Cougar Mountain, um, which is in the Issaquah Alps, at the Sky County Trailhead at 8 a.m. on the first Sunday of the month. And I have uh, an Instagram page that's just Party Pace Pals that I will try to, you know, make announcements about when runs are happening and time, place, all of that. At Party Pace Pals on the Instagram. I love that. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious to know, with respect to giving back, are there any specific organizations that you are really passionate about participating in today? What I think so many people need right now, because so many people are going to have to travel to get the abortions that they need, is to donate to abortion funds. And there's a whole big list of them out there. I think super, super important and really a a radical act of love. And so that's a huge one that is near and dear to my heart. And then All Bodies on Bikes is one that I I really, really love. Everyone should definitely check out Marley Blonsky, who helps to run that. She brings a really great um, and inclusive energy to the cycling world just as an awesome athlete. Awesome. Yeah, those are two big ones. I love that. We have one more quick segment. This is the Chasing Cutoffs lightning round, which we call Fast Twitch, Slow Twitch. Okay. Would you rather come in first in a marathon or DFL in a 50k? Uh, DFL in a 50k. All right. I love it. <laughs> Dogs or cats? Dogs. Sweet or salty? Ooh, um, sweet. What's your go-to? I am just a really big fan of all baked goods. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're just everywhere, always. The combination of sugar and grain and butter you just can't beat it (laughs) what is your trailhead access vehicle what are you driving (laughs) um 
one that is not very good at getting out to trails, uh-huh. a little Honda Fit. Oh yeah, I love it. The Honda Fit. I love that. <laughs> yep. Outside of running, are you a naturally competitive person? No. Mm-hmm. Not even a little bit. Koros, Garmin, Sunto, or other? Oh, I have a Garmin. Right on. Okay. Very cool. I'm taking it. It's a little poll. So we're gonna, one of these days I'm going to publish everybody's answer. Are you able to do trail math in your head when you're running? I found myself starting to try to do that yeah. at Tiger Claw and actively tried to make it stop. Oh. So I really try not to engage in it and just let let my body move the pace it needs to and then see where I end up. And well, we know where I ended up, but. <laughs> what is your worst injury ever? Hmm. I mean, the, the broken elbow was pretty bad, mm-hmm. but after the first six hour that I did, the hamster endurance six hour, I ended up almost tearing my hip flexor in mm. half. Oh. Yeah. And I mean, it was completely self-inflicted. So that feels worse to me <laughs> than the elbow because it was something I just kept going and thought it would be okay. And then ended up doing close to six months of PT before running again. Oh, wow. That's rough. What is your toughest finish ever? I, well, I don't have a ton of <laughs> finishes because I'm such a new racer, but I think. Maybe that half marathon because it was so. I think so. Mislabeled. Um, yeah. <laughs> vandalized. Yeah. It was my 17 mile half marathon. That <laughs> um, <it> was <laughs> the hardest. When things are getting really tough out on the trail, mm-hmm. do you have any sort of mantra or self-talk that you tend to do? Yeah, um, this actually goes back to something that is kind of a long-standing thing that my husband and I would tell each other when we were out doing wild bike rides. Mm. Kind of as a joke, but also kind of true, is stay cool, honey bunny. <laughs> And like every time I think about it, it always makes me laugh. And um, so that's helpful. I hope that some listener out there adopts this particular mantra. (laughs) They're just like, this is the hardest race ever. Stay cool, honey buddy. Stay cool, honey buddy. (laughs) Do you have a dream destination or race that you really want to do? I think I have aspirations to someday do a 50 miler. Okay. Any specific 50 miler? The Devil's Gulch 50 miler is one that I would love to be my first 50 miler. Going back to Banshee running. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's just so many amazing races in the Northwest that I would just be so, just so jazzed mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. As you look into the future, would you rather crew a friend, pace a friend, or volunteer mm. at an aid station? Well, I'm hoping to crew a friend who's crewing her husband for a hundred miler. <laughs> You're crewing so the being, crewer. Yeah. <laughs> because it's hard. It is hard work. I love um, that. I've never heard of crewing a crewer before. Crewing the crew. Yeah. Last question. As you have entered into this world, uh, you may have noticed that uh, this sport is growing really fast and it's mm-hmm. growing really fast quite recently with lots of yeah. new investment and it's getting kind of corporate and crazy and there's a lot of emphasis on the elite runners. Mm-hmm. What impact do you think that's going to have on the back of the pack? I worry about a sport that already really struggles to include women racers, racers of color, racers that don't fit the body model that we often see of elite runners. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I do worry about that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm grateful for organizations like Trail Sisters um, that you know are really helping to fight that. Mm-hmm. All that being said, if people want to continue to follow your journey, how can they do that? Where can they find you? I am on Instagram, like like everybody, at Emmy on Trails. 
you are up for a lot of the running stuff, interspersed with my wild five-year-old and a lot of midwifery-related content. Check out Emmy on Trails. Get inspired. Well, once again, thank you. This has been super fun. I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always great to, to talk about this wild thing we do. Thank you so much, Emmy, and thank you to each and every one of you for listening. Not a whole lot of housekeeping to do this week. If you want to follow the show on Instagram, you can find us at Chasing Cutoffs. If you want to reach out and say hi, you can message me there. You can send me an email to chasingcutoffs at gmail.com or find us on Facebook at Chasing Cutoffs Podcast. If you are a fellow DNF, DFL specialist, this is your show. This is your place to get involved, be part of the conversation. And I'm really looking forward to bringing more and more athlete stories to all of you. So wherever you are in your back of the pack cutoff chasing journey, from myself, producer Daisy, and all of us at Chasing Cutoffs, keep crushing the miles and let's flip the script on slow.